You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, when I say the word king, who comes to mind? You might think of Dr. Martin Luther King. You might think of old King Cole, not King Cole. If you're a Hamilton fan, you might think of King George. And no, I'm not going to sing it. You might think of Burger King. I don't know. This idea of king. What is a king? Put plainly, the king is our sovereign, someone who rules over you. We sit under their authority, we enjoy their protection, we celebrate their provision. Everyone has a king, something or someone that drives your life and is a sovereign over you. So maybe I'm a little over the line here, but when I think about the kings of 2020, I see plenty of kings who promise to be great. In some cases, it's literal leaders, people who will promise anything to get a little bit of influence or impress us. Maybe your king isn't a person though. Maybe it's an idea. Maybe it's a, it's a workout regimen or a diet that promised a lot and still hasn't filled that place inside. Maybe it's a relationship that you hoped would materialize and it just hasn't panned out. Something that promised big but fell flat. So regardless of what kind of king we place ourselves under or what their name is, they all seem to overpromise and underdeliver, don't they? And maybe you're like me, I, I'm just tired of feeling that. Like a little bait and switch. I'm just tired of the empty rhetoric that leads nowhere. I'm tired of feeling disillusioned. And maybe that feeling of disillusionment with the kings of our world, especially the kings of 2020, is actually the greatest testament for what a king should be. See, I believe it's not enough for a king to be great. I believe, believe that a king also must be good. So we are in the thick of our five-week series called Preparing the Way, this five-week glimpse into King Jesus, this one-day future king that God's people only knew as Messiah. Now we know his name. And we started with two goals in mind, to treasure God's word and then to prepare our own hearts, both such good practices, especially this year. So this morning, we're taking a look at a pair of texts, an Old Testament prophecy and a New Testament scene that so closely resemble each other, it could be a mirror image. We're taking a look at Isaiah chapter 42, and then we're also going to look at John chapter 9. In this beautiful poetic language, Isaiah imagines a coming king who will help the blind see, and then in John 9, seven centuries later, we find ourselves by a Judean roadside where Jesus does exactly that. So this morning we're talking about Jesus's authority as king, and you're going to see him assert his authority in a way that is both unquestionably great and profoundly good. And here's where we're driving this morning. Jesus's authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. Jesus's authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. So Let's just dive right in. Let's get to Isaiah chapter 42. We've got a lot to cover, and um, this is going to tee us up really well for what's to come. So Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So all this beautiful imagery about a king and Isaiah just jumps right in. This king isn't brash. He doesn't raise up his voice in the street. He is merciful. He says he won't crack a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. This king is profoundly oriented toward justice. It says he won't rest until it's done. But then in verse five, God shifts his voice a little bit. Instead of talking about this servant king, he now talks to him in verse five. But let's pick it up in verse six. Here's what he says to him. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison or from the prison those who sit in darkness i am the lord and that is my name my glory i give to no other nor my praise to carved idols behold the former things have come to pass and new things i now declare before they spring forth i tell you of them now what i want us to see here is that god's desire for his glory in verses 7 or verses 8 and verse 9 God's desire for his glory motivates him to do what he does. He acts for our benefit, and this king will act for our good. But really, the ultimate goal is God's glory. Now there's a third shift in Isaiah's prophecy. He's talked about the king. He's talked to the king. And now God turns back to the people. And after a shocking and profound metaphor, he talks about what this king will do. Take a look in verse 14. This is God speaking. He says, for a long time, I have held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will grasp and pant. What a powerful metaphor that is. He says, I will lay waste mountains and hills. I will dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands. I will dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in the way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Now remember, prophets do two things. They speak up against sin and then they look out toward the future. And this prophecy is Isaiah looking out to the future. God uses the image of childbirth. It's really interesting when you consider all the childbirth imagery that surrounds the Christmas season. As a hinge to make these incredible promises in verse 15 and verse 16, he says, I will lead them when they don't know where to go. Then I'll guide them when they can't see the path. I'll give them darkness when they're afraid and I'll smooth over the rough places so that they don't stumble. If you had to condense all of this into one idea, this is God basically saying, I've got you. It's going to be a long time coming, but don't worry. And then the exclamation point at the end in verse 16, I love this, is when he says, I won't forget about you. I won't fail you. Don't worry. Now, women carry a child for nine months. Right? Nine months of anticipation, nine months of waiting, nine months of believing until the time comes. And God's promises took 700 years. That's a long time to wait. So if we can leave Isaiah's words hanging in the air and find our way to a Judean roadside, 
we'll get a picture of who this servant king is. So turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And one last bit before we get there. I don't want to get too heady, but I want to let you know how I approach some of these texts and how I handle them. So I'm a big believer in letting the structure of the text drive the structure of the sermon. And so for the last two weeks, we've kind of worked through a text. And then at the end, we've had these, you know, four or five implications about what we're supposed to do with it. And that's, in my mind, that's naturally how those texts fell. But this week's going to be a little bit different. The application stuff, it it sort of blossoms and arises at different points along the way. So I just want to let you know that, um, just to be watching out for that. So um, enough with that intro. Let's just dive right in. John chapter 9, and we're going to start right in verse 1. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We'll come back to that in just a minute. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's him. And others said, no, it's someone like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. And so they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered, this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and washed. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. All right, so let's back up. The disciples haven't been on stage for a while in John. Now, the last scene last week with a woman caught in adultery, they weren't there, but here they are back in the picture. And you get a sense as they're walking along that this random blind man is there and they want to ignite a discussion with Jesus about him. Here's what's up. The disciples ask this question because like most people, they're assuming that sin and suffering are intimately connected. The thinking goes like this. Well, okay, here's this blind guy. We're not supposed to be blind, so something's wrong. And wrong only comes to us when God wants to punish us. So who messed up Jesus? What's your explanation for this thing? They're assuming that the evil that they experience in their world can be made more palatable if Jesus can answer one question. Why? Why do good things happen, or why bad things happen to good people? Why, Jesus? What's going on? Have you ever been there? Have you ever asked that question when you see suffering in our world? So before we really unfold this text, I want to pull off to the side just for a second and and talk about this. This next two minutes are going to be really helpful for you if you've ever asked that question, why? So three reasons why suffering exists. I'm just going to hit them really quick. First off, there's the theological reason why suffering exists. Ever since Genesis 3, we are living in a world that is touched by, shrouded by, and marred by the effects of Adam and Eve. And I know it feels unfair because we say things like, I I shouldn't have to pay for their sin. I wasn't there. Well, that's not on the table because we've all done the exact same thing. And so sin is here. It's part of our world. Everything that we touch is already touched somehow by this darkness called sin. That's the theological reason. But there's another reason, what we'll call the collateral reason. 
for suffering, the collateral reason for sin. Sometimes bad things happen in our lives as collateral damage of somebody else's sin. And this is the really heartbreaking stuff. Last year, um, here in our sanctuary at North Canton Chapel, I led a funeral for a young mom who was shot in the head by her boyfriend. Now, what is that? Like, that is wrong and heartbreaking and evil and terrible. Well, that is the collateral damage of somebody else's anger, somebody else's sin. And we see this in our world all the time, and it's heartbreaking and terrible, but it's here. That's the collateral reason for sin. There's another reason for suffering and sin in our world, and it's this personal reason. Sometimes sin affects us because of our own choices. If I cheat on my taxes, there's consequences for that. If I speed on my way home, I may get a ticket. If I eat pizza and wings for a week, there are consequences for that. But there's a deeper, darker kind of layer to this. If I cultivate anger in my heart, I'm going to become a bitter, angry, frustrated old man. If I envy my neighbor for what my neighbor has, I am never going to be content with what God gives me. If I quietly nurse lust in my heart, I'm never going to have the marriage that God is calling me to. And so suffering, you have the theological reason, the collateral reason, and the personal reason. So with all that in mind, the disciples are asking Jesus to choose between the last two options, saying, okay, we see this guy, there's something profoundly wrong. Jesus, which is it? Is it the collateral damage? Is it his parents' sin? Or is it his sin? Did he do this? And as is so often the case with Jesus, when people present him with two options that are neither correct, he finds a third way. And he says it right in the middle of verse three, and I hope you caught it. He says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. Put succinctly, Jesus always wants to introduce a who more than he wants to explain a why. That is a big conclusion when you're thinking about suffering. Jesus always wants to explain or introduce a who more than he wants to explain a why. And this isn't the full point of this text, but this great little micro principle nestled in here. You will see God do amazing things in your life when you are more committed to seeking his glory through the suffering than an explanation for the suffering. And that's really hard. Because we feel like we deserve an explanation, right? Like, Jesus, why is this happening to me? What are you doing? What's going on? I need clarity. I need an explanation. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't. You don't need an explanation because no explanation is going to make you feel better. What you need is me. (laughs) What's going to make you feel better is when your why converts to a who. I didn't come here as God's explanation. I came as his incarnation. Here's why this is so important. You will only understand the reason suffering in the context of a relationship. And relationships take time. When you cultivate a relationship with Jesus, eventually you'll understand the reason. Now, another quick detail that we've got to see here. I know this is a lot of setting the stage, but track with me. What's with the spit? Because that's kind of gross, right? If you're watching this morning at home and you're a six-year-old boy, this is not a problem for you. But for most of us, we're like, this is disgusting. Why did Jesus do this? He's healed other people without spit, even from blindness, like Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 8. So why did he choose to do it here? He didn't have to. The answer has to do with his authority. Now, follow me. In Jesus' day, Jewish folk medicine was kind of a big deal. It was on the rise. 
Um, I'm probably going to draw the ire of some of you for this, but if you have to think about Jewish folk medicine, it's kind of like our recent obsession with like essential oils and feng shui and mixed with a little bit of meditation. Like everybody had a cure for everything and some of it sounded a little bit weird. So like take this lavender oil, rub it on your forehead and then run around your house 10 times. So you essential oil people, you know who you are and I await your emails in the morning. So here's the thing though. One of the most popular teachings of Jesus's day came from a conservative group of Jewish rabbis. And these Jewish rabbis taught that saliva actually had healing properties. Now that, again, sounds gross, but it's where we get our phrase, licking your wounds, okay? But here's the key insight. It wasn't just any saliva. There was one not to be missed, all important stipulation. In order for saliva to heal, it had to come from a father's firstborn son. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus isn't trying to make a scene. He's trying to make a statement. In the weeks leading up to this, he said some really incredible things. He said, like, I come from my father. He gives me my authority. You'll never understand me unless he draws you. He's saying, look, I am here to reveal the Father to you. I'm here to reveal his plan that you've forgotten, his heart that you've completely missed, his authority, which you've rejected. I have my Father's endorsement. And so now this little miracle by the side of the road, this is his bold, italic, caps lock, underline, highlighted. You want to see my authority? Okay, great. Let's do this thing. And I'm going to do this because I am the firstborn of my Father. I want to reveal something about him, his heart, his plan. Jesus' authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. So, after Jesus covers his eyes with mud, this graced blind beggar finds his way to the pool of Siloam, this central place in the city, a freshwater spring where people gathered water. So, last significant detail here, and then we'll move on in the narrative. The pool of Siloam was significant. It's the water source for the Feast of Tabernacles, this feast that the people had just got done celebrating. So part of the program for this feast, we didn't talk about this last week, but it definitely is important for this text. Part of the program for this feast is this ritual where the high priest would take a bottle of water and he'd go down to the pool of Siloam, he'd fill it up, and then he'd lead the people on a procession through the city. And when he got to the temple, he would take that and he would dump it on the altar as a way of remembering God's provision of water when his people were in the desert. Which incidentally makes Jesus' words about let him come to me and drink very, very dicey. But here's the point. According to Pharisaic tradition, Blind people were excluded from the temple. And so that big feast that God's people were celebrating last week, this guy wasn't there. He didn't get to celebrate God's provision. He didn't get to celebrate how God, how God is good to him. He didn't get to praise God. And Jesus is here going, oh no, watch this. My authority over you is connected to God's love for you. This man is obviously well known in his community as a beggar because all his friends and neighbors recognize him. So how does this little deal go down? Let's pick things up again in verse 13. They brought him, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And they said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed 
and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They're talking about Jesus there. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such thing? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So they're thinking now, okay, maybe this is just all one big charade. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son. He's born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. Now, if you're sensing the temperature rising here, you're reading this correctly. The man's friends and neighbors bring him, probably still dumbstruck from seeing for the very first time in his life, to the freshly offended Pharisees. Not the best move. (laughs) They're trying to make sense of what's going on, and so they bring him to the experts, right? Now, the first words of verse 14 kind of give us a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And we should feel this tense music and the storm clouds gathering. Alarm bells should go off in our heads. Now, according to Pharisaic tradition, mixing saliva and dirt was considered kneading, like bread, like mixing stuff together, like mortar. You're preparing to work. And we don't work on the Sabbath. And so this guy, whatever he did, he's breaking God's law. Further, since healing is considered a medical practice, that's also considered work. And since work is forbidden on the Sabbath, this man's friends and neighbors actually provided the Pharisees with evidence against Jesus, a very convenient double offense. And this is how the Pharisees worked. Seems like they're missing the point, and that's because they are. This stuff is still in practice today. Um, These things are called fence laws, and here's how they work. So remember back in the Ten Commandments, like Charlton Heston tablets, sparky writing, okay? So the Ten Commandments, there's this one commandment that says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you probably know that one. Well, in order to protect that, the Pharisees thought, we need to actually build a law to make sure that people do it. So no manual work on the Sabbath, okay? So they put a fence around it. Okay, well, what constitutes manual work? And all the rabbis got together and discussed what that would mean. So how about plowing your field? Yep, well, that's work. How about, you know, making a fire? That's work. How about conducting business? That's work. And so all these fences got created to protect this law in the middle. Before long, people started obeying the fence laws and forgetting about the middle part. That's how we got to where we are now. So if you even fast forward today, this stuff is still in existence. In a lot of Orthodox Jewish, Jewish circles today, Some rabbis teach that you actually can't open your refrigerator on the Sabbath because that little light that comes on when you open the door constitutes making a fire, which constitutes work, which means that you are dishonoring God. So we need to build these fence laws around all of it to make sure we don't break any of it. Jesus doesn't want to change your heart, right? He just wants to modify your behavior is the thinking here. And if you don't believe me, about half of all General Electric, Whirlpool, and KitchenAid appliances actually have a Sabbath mode on them. You can check that out. So Jesus just bulldozes right past all of this senseless 
adventures in missing the point fence building. And he says, look, let's get to the heart of this thing. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This guy is blind. And even though none of you love him, I do, my father does. And I'm acting on his authority to heal him. And if you can't see that, you have missed God's heart entirely. Jesus's authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. And that's the charge that so infuriated the Pharisees. This man is committing blasphemy. And if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you are absolutely right. He is either the eternal son of God or he is an arrogant fool. And that's exactly where the Pharisees end up. Listen to this next exchange. Take a look in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which is like a way of saying, come on, enough with this. We know this man is a sinner. Listen to this exchange. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Remember the fence laws there. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Like, that's some high-level theology. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Now, I love this guy's simple, deliberate sarcasm. Like he's so overjoyed at the ability of actually seeing again. And then he drops this theology on them. And he has this like loosened lips, bolder than he should be, honest, almost laughable conversation with the religious leaders. And he goes like, I don't get it either. But if he was from God, Or if he wasn't from God, how could he actually do this? And he was basically saying, come on, guys, at least be consistent in your theology. And verse 34 should break your heart, that they cast him out. And what the religious leaders can't square with is when he's saying this simple but bold testimony. They have to retreat to this personal insult where they go, you, you're worthless. They don't understand how Jesus can change somebody's life. And so all I have to do is they just insult him. That's the only thing that's left. Now we're going to get to how King Jesus restores this man's personal dignity in just a second. But there's something that we need to see here. When it comes to talking about Jesus, sometimes a simple confession is best. Sometimes a simple confession is best. We saw this in the last two weeks with the woman at the well in John 4. She just says, this guy changed my life. You got to come meet him. With the woman caught in adultery last week, Jesus asks her, like, what's going on? Is anybody ready here to condemn you? And she goes, no one, Lord. And then her life has changed. A simple confession can lead to remarkable change. And sometimes it's the best thing that you can say. And I say that, I want to offer you that, because I think sometimes sharing your faith is really, really intimidating. It's really, really hard. 
Like I've got to have all the answers to every potential question that somebody could ask me. Well, if your life is a debate, sure, but your life is not a debate stage. Your life is living proof of Jesus's work, or it ought to be. Let me get practical and look into the crystal ball here for a minute. The holidays are coming. And while we're probably not going to have these big, extravagant, extended family gatherings, this is the time when friends and relatives kind of circle back around. You're going to see people that you haven't seen in a long time. What are you going to talk about? (laughs) I think it's a safe bet that there are two topics that are absolutely going to come up. The election and COVID. Both potentially polarizing, both potentially relationship, relationship sucking. I promise that they're going to come up. And everybody, including your sweet Aunt Ruth, has an opinion about them. So how are you going to talk about it? If we can learn anything from this blind man, it's that sometimes a simple confession is best. And that probably looks like establishing boundaries in your conversation, determining ahead of time what you won't talk about, or at least determining how you're going to talk about it. And the Pharisees try to corner this guy three different times, once in verse 17, once in verse 24, and once in verse 26. And every time, the guy's like, look, I don't know about this, and I don't know about that. I don't know how he did it. I don't even know what he looks like. All I know is that I was blind, and now I can see, period. Mic drop, end of story. What's the lesson? Talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. Don't talk about what you don't know. Why? Because nobody can argue with the work of Christ in your life. That's off limits. Now, they may think you're crazy. They may think you're missing the point. And like the Pharisees, they may not invite you back to the next party. But if we're going to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, the holidays are a great opportunity to do just that. Here's the catch. It's got to be real. You've got to have this touch from Jesus. doesn't mean your life has to be perfect. I doubt this guy's was. But you've got to have that relationship that actually brings peace. You've got to have that relationship that actually brings comfort. You've got to have that relationship with Jesus that allows you to see the joy over the jostle. If you're going to fake it, don't bother. You've got to actually know Jesus, making much of him every day to everyone. Because that's all this guy did. He's like, I know you want to know my opinion about whatever. Truth is, I don't care. Here's who I care about. His name is Jesus. He's changed my life. I've been following him for like 15 minutes, the best 15 minutes of my life. Do you want to follow him too? That's evangelism. And I believe, even amid his simple sarcasm, he probably wants them to experience the same thing that he's just learned, that Jesus' authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. So how does it work out for this guy? Take a look in verse 35. Scholars call this the resolution. This is the last scene of the movie where the hero rides off in the sunset. This is the last chorus before the song's over. And in this case, it's probably the most tender moment in the entire narrative. Take a look in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, You've seen him. And it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. And those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. That is a striking statement. We're going to come right back to it. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. 
But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And that's a very ominous tone to end this text. But don't you love it? This guy is talking with Jesus. And since he hasn't seen him yet, he can't recognize him. He doesn't even know what he looks like. And just like the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus answers him very plainly, doesn't he? It's really beautiful. But don't miss it. There are two groups of people in this text, this final scene. And right smack in the middle of the scene, we get this vibrant word from Jesus where he pulls back the curtain on his mission. Jesus talks like this a lot in the Gospels. And every time he talks like this, our ears ought to perk up. We ought to pay attention because he's revealing his heart. Maybe you caught it. Let's come back to it in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That verse lands a little odd on the ear, doesn't it? Like it's a little discordant, it's a little dissonant, like there's no resolution to it, is there? Like this isn't blue, blue sash Jesus petting a little lamb. This isn't like distant stoic philosopher Jesus. This is rough carpenter's hands, Jesus, with dried mud still caked under his fingernails. Jesus is talking about his authority. And with a blind man in the foreground and the Pharisees lurking in the shadowy background, he's making it clear. Everything that we just did here, this is a living parable. I did all this to teach you something, and here's what it is. (laughs) Jesus is asserting himself as God's promised Messiah For those who are spiritually blind and know it, Jesus came to give light. For those who think they can already see, Jesus came to reveal their blindness. And that brings Jesus to his closing remark that he says in verse 41. He says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And you have to know And as Jesus says that, God's words through Isaiah 7, centuries earlier, just reverberate through their memories. I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and I'll keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the the prison, those who sit in darkness. Is it any coincidence? That's at the top of this narrative in John 9. How's Jesus refer to himself? He says he's the what? Light of the world. So just like in Isaiah's time, just like in Jesus's time, our world is characterized by two groups of people. Group number one, you're blind and you know it. Group number two, you're blind and you don't know it. You both need Jesus. Only the first group recognizes it. You know, closing our time together with singing Be Thou My Vision is a little kind of admittedly on the nose. Uh, But here's the thing. I've repeated this idea over and over again this morning that Jesus' authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. Another way to put that is Jesus wants to lead you because he loves you. There is nothing more satisfying than a life lived under the authority of this shepherd, servant, king, Jesus. So the question isn't, do you need him? The question is, have you admitted it? (laughs) And can you say it? Because when you can say these words that we're going to sing in a minute, you be my vision, not me. 
You guide me, not me. When you say that, you also get to say these other great things like not be all else to me, save that thou art, which is a fancy way of saying nothing else matters if I have you, Jesus. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. It's another way of saying this world has nothing for me. It's all you, Jesus. And so as we sing this this morning, sing it from your heart. I hope you know that you were born into this world blind. And I hope that you've come to Jesus and say, would you remove this blindness from me so I can see who you are, so I can worship you, and so I can follow you with my life. Jesus' authority over you is always connected to God's love for you. Let me pray. Father, again, we come to you and we say how profoundly good you are. That you meet us by our roadside when we are helpless and destitute and needy and unable. And you come in with all of your kingship, all of your authority, all of your strength. And you never call us to stand up on our own. You get down with us and you fix us. And so God, would you do that? If there's anybody watching this morning, God, that doesn't know you, maybe this could be the morning where they call out and say, Jesus, I need you. Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.